Good morning, everyone. Well, as you can tell, I think from the introspective tone of our worship music today, this is a day for thinking. This is a day for thinking. Um, so I'm going to ask you to, to enter into a little time of imagination here for the next 30 minutes. And that is, um, let's all make this assumption that you are on a journey and God has called you. Even if you don't know what that is right now, let's just start there. Like you are on a journey and God has called you. Now, even if you're here today and you think, well, I'm not even sure I believe in God. I'm actually watching online. Welcome. Or I'm here to investigate that whole thing. You can still do this exercise with us. Just for the time that you're here, think, well, let's suppose just for 30 minutes, there is a God. I am on a journey and he's called me and just see what that thought process does inside of you. You can go back to thinking how you were thinking before at the end of this, but for a time, just enter into that with this. Because this is one of those messages. We're in Ezra chapter eight and Ezra is on a journey. And if you're not thinking how this journey interacts and applies to your journey, this would be a very boring message. So, so you want to have your journey kind of in your, in your mind, Okay, um, uh, for some of you, that's very obvious. Your journey is very obvious. You know, your new parents, so that's a journey. You're newly retired, so begins a journey. Um, you are investigating a, a new church. You're here to see if dr drawing close to God is something that's been missing from your life. That, that's a journey. You have a new diagnosis you didn't have before. That's gonna be a journey, okay? So, so all of us are on some sort of a, of a journey, so this is, at this time, we have this reflection sheet. This would be a great time for you to take that sheet you, you picked up as you came in out. If you didn't pick this up as you came in, you are free to run back there to that table and grab one of those. There you go, Scott. God bless you. Um, yep. If you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're not gonna pick this up, I suppose you could take out your phone and open an app or you can take notes, although I'm stalling right now so you can get one of these. Wave at Scott, he'll give you one. Um, because again, we wanna be reflecting on this journey. So your own phone or this sheet or whatever. Um, and, and the first question is, for this journey that you're on, uh, why does God care about this journey? Why does God care about this journey? Now, since you've all been such good students, I'm just going to give you the answer to the first one. All right? You could put, because he loves me. What's, what I'm going through is important to him. Some of you have something a little more. You know for sure, he called me. He calls me to this. You could put that. Because it's an important part of my life, and what's important to me is important to my father. Any of these answers would be correct. But you want to know right away, God cares about the journey that you're on. There just isn't a journey too small. And most journeys are bigger than you think. So here is the journey that Ezra is on. So the people of Israel, up to this point in the Bible, they have lived in a foreign land. It's called the exile. They were captured many generations ago by an enemy nation and hauled away into slavery and had to live there as exiles. But when this new regime comes in, they start getting... Uh, Yep, got that. Uh, so, sorry, as this new regime comes in and uh, they start to get edicts that say they can come home. Now, they did not come home all in one big group. They came home in these waves, large groups. Over the course of a uh, hundred years, they come home. And Ezra is about to come home in one of these waves. And that's what this journey is about. Now, we, we talked about in a previous week, they had built the temple of God. 
rebuilt it because it had been torn down in the war. But then by this time in the Bible, they're not really doing what they're supposed to do in that temple. They're not practicing the Old Testament law of Moses. So they built something for God, but their hearts are not dedicated to God. You see the difference? They built something for God, but then their hearts aren't dedicated to God. They're not really worshiping God there. So that's the first thing I want to ask about your journey. Have you looked at your journey from God's point of view? Or are you just building something? Much like anybody may build, whether they knew about God or not. Are you just building an education? Are you just building a career? Are you just building a family? But you haven't really considered, where is God in this journey? What might he call me to? What might he want from this? Where, what, where, where is he at? You could almost just answer this yes or no, but maybe you want to put a little more. Just jot a little something in there. Have you considered your journey from God's point of view? Or have you kind of been building it on your your own, or even for him, but not really, your heart hasn't been in that part of it. We're going to pick up our text in Ezra chapter 8, verse 15. Ezra writes, I assembled the exiles at the Ahava Canal, and we camped there for three days while I went over the lists of the people and the priests who had arrived. I found that not one Levite had volunteered to come along. All right, what's this mean? So Ezra gets everybody together. They pack up the animals. There's like 5,000 people. And they start out. And then the first night they camp. And, and Ezra's looking around and he's got a funny feeling. So he says, we're going to stop here. I'm going to go over the list of everybody who's here. 5,000 names, all right? So they camp there for three days while he goes over this. He's looking to see how many priests and Levites. So Levites were a special tribe of Israel. They were trained to do the work of God's holy temple. And that's how they, they were born into that work. So he's going through the names and nobody from that tribe has come along and no priests have come along. Now this is big trouble because Ezra is going back to do a religious reform. He wants to turn the hearts of people back to God and nobody trained to do that with him has come. So this is trouble. What about your journey? Who or what do you need that you don't have right now? Who or what do you need for the journey? Do you need an expert? Do you need some means? Do you need an education? Do you need your spouse to go along with this and agree? Do you need your family to be bought in? Does your boss or team at work need to be bought in? This journey that you're trying to take, what are you missing right now that you could really use? Maybe just a list of one or two or three things that you can think of like, yeah, I really, gosh, I really need that. Now, I want to summarize what happens in verses 16 through 20. We won't be reading this, but Ezra decides we can't just run off. I can't just run off on my own and do this. I can't go back to a city I wasn't born in and, and do all this with nobody. So he picks nine tribal leaders and two religious experts. And he says, go back to the city we've just came from and drum up some priests. I know we already asked them. Ask again. We can't do any. So they got all packed up, moved one day away, and then just stopped right there. Because they don't have what they need and they have to wait. And waiting on God for the things you don't have but need can be the hardest part of a journey. But friends, we can't just run off on our own and do these things. So 
Let me tell you, because they camped there, it, it delayed them another two weeks. They got everybody ready to go and then had to sit there and do nothing for three days while he went through the list and now another two weeks. But because they took that time and those guys went back and asked again, this time, 40 priests and 180 Levites, temple servants said, all right, we'll go, we'll go. And so they got 220 people trained for religious reform, actually agreed to go back because they waited. I don't know why God made them wait, but he did. But it paid off, they're going. So I wanna ask, who or what do you need to wait for? Now, pay attention as you make this list, how you feel putting these down, because that's gonna matter in a moment. If some of them, as you write, you feel something, just make note of that. It's going to come up in a moment. But who or what do you need to wait for before this spiritual journey can really get underway? This journey that you're on can really go well. Who or what do you need to wait for? Okay, we're going to pick up in verse 21. And there by the Ahava Canal, I gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that he would give us a safe journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we traveled. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from our enemies along the way. After all, we had told the king, our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him, and his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. So we fasted and earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us, and he heard our prayer. So there were always bandits on the road looking for traveling groups back then. But remember, we talked last week, this is even more dangerous time because there is an open rebellion happening in the western end of the empire, and that's the direction they're traveling. So they're traveling toward a war zone. However, Ezra doesn't feel like after some of the speeches he's made that he can ask for soldiers to protect them. Because basically he went to the king of Persia and he says, let us go back and the Lord our God wants us to go and he'll protect us. He's gonna make a way because he wants the people to turn back to us and anybody who stands in our way, our God's anger will burn against them. And the king of Persia says, all right, go back. And then he didn't feel like going, oh, well, um, could you send us some of your soldiers in case our God like really isn't up to this? So he's like, well, I guess like we need to rely on God then. So we're gonna pray. We're going to pray here for God's protection. We're going to pray here for God's protection. So here's my question. Uh, what do you need to rely on God for on this journey? Now, this is nearly the opposite problem of what we just said. A moment ago, I said, you can't run off on your own. You know, you need to wait for some things from God. But here's another truth that's just as true. You're probably not going to get everything you want to feel comfortable for this journey you're gonna to have to rely on God for some things and just get going. And those some things usually have to do with safety and security. So let me say that again. You're probably not gonna get everything you want before you can start this journey. You're gonna to have to rely on God for some things along the way. And those things usually have to do with safety and security. So as you're making your list of things you didn't have, were there some of them where you just felt uncomfortable writing it down? Almost as if the Holy Spirit was saying, Oh, no, you don't need that one. You can get going without that. I'll take care of that. Don't wait for that. So maybe right now you're moving some things from your previous list of things I don't have to things I need to rely on God for. Some things I need to wait for, but some things we probably just need to get going. Because who is this journey you're going on set up to bring glory to? 
Is it set up to bring glory to you for being such a great planner and such a great parent and being so brilliant and having it all together? Or is it set up to thank the king of Persia? Thank goodness that pagan king sent us some soldiers to protect us or we never would have got here. Or is your journey set up to praise God because he provided everything that you needed and to him be all the glory? So that's the way spiritual journeys usually should go. There's some things you have to step out and say, I'm gonna rely on God for that and he provides. So what are those things you probably just need to rely on God for and, and get going? They decided they would fast and pray. So fasting and praying is an ancient spiritual practice and everyone is still practiced by Christians today. Fasting and praying is still practiced by Christians all over the world, even in our own city and our own church today. So fasting does a lot of stuff. First of all, fasting kind of proclaims this. I know that I need to eat to live, but you know what I need even more to live? God. And so I set aside this time to say, I'm putting aside everything that you think you need for life and I'm actually just relying on God today. That's what this fast is about. Fasting also proclaims that we understand this. I don't take care of myself by eating. God takes care of me. And on this day, I demonstrate that through the fast. Fasting also focuses us on prayer because how often are we meaning to pray and we just get distracted. But on a fast day, you get hungry, right? And every time your stomach growls, you're like, oh, I need to, oh, I need to pray. I had set aside this day to pray. And that will remind you throughout the day, trust me, that that's what this day is all about. So here's the next question. Might this journey you're on be worth one day a month, one day a week, depending on how long this journey is you're talking about, where from sunrise to sunset, you take in no food. It's not even uh, 24 hours. Just from sunrise to sunset, you take in no food. And as you do that, you proclaim what I really need to live is God and God's the one who takes care of me. And this is a day when I, doggone it, I've tried to pray every day, but on this day, I bet it gets done because I'll get hungry and my body will remind me you're on a journey. Might it be worth a, a, a time to fast and pray? Think that over. And if you decide, yeah, maybe, what you're writing down is, is it once a month? Is it a day a week? We're not going to go crazy and do one of these 40-day things. I don't even know how that's done. I've known people that wrecked themselves medically trying that without proper training. And I have not received the proper training, so I cannot give it to you. So, But I could do the one day a month or the, the one day a week from sunup to sundown. That's pretty sound, um, depending on what other medical stuff you may have going on. Consult your doctor. But uh, might it be worth the time to fast and pray? Okay, let me summarize what happens in verse 24 through 30. This is where we learn that all this fasting and praying for the protection of God is no joke. Because they were traveling with like 5,000 people and we can tell from the names listed and such and some of the other little words scattered out like protect our children. They have children and old people with them. About 2,000 of them are elderly or children. So they got some very vulnerable people traveling in this group into a land where there's a rebellion going just a little bit past that. So they need this protection. Also, this caravan is carrying something that's going to attract a lot of trouble. This caravan is carrying an offering from the king of Persia, plus offerings from all the Jews who are staying behind in Babylon. We, we know from archaeology that in the Persian Empire at this time, there were already Jews who had become very successful in Persian banking. And while they're not going home to Israel, they are sending a big offering 
back to the motherland so to, to, to show their connection to the homeland. And so this caravan, according to Ezra, is traveling with 56,000 pounds of offerings. That's 28 tons of gold, silver, and bronze. They're traveling in 2023 dollars with $10.8 million strapped to the backs of between 100 and 300 camels and mules. They're going to crawl over land and camp under the stars every night at the astonishing rate of nine miles a day for three months. For three months, they're traveling around with elderly people, children, and $10 million. They're going to need protection. That's no joke. Now, just about the time we would think, oh, we're going to get some exciting stories about being attacked by bandits and fending off warlords and this sort of thing. We just get one verse. We broke camp at the Ahava Canal on April 19th. Oh, my son's birthday and Tate Turner's birthday and Dan Wilburn's birthday and Hitler's birthday. Um, <laughs> and they on April 19th, let's remember it is Ezra's day. They broke camp and they started off to Jerusalem. And the gracious hand of our God protected us and saved us from enemies and bandits along the way. That's all we get. God protected them. We don't know if they didn't meet any bandits or enemies. We don't know if they did meet bandits and enemies, but the Lord protected them. They were able to fight them off. We just know they got there and praise the Lord. And then comes a very interesting verse for all of us. Verse 32. So we arrived safely in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. So everyone, they have come into town with this mission to turn the hearts of God back, or nope, to turn the hearts of people back to God. And God has protected them. And they have $10.8 million of stuff to enact all this reform. And they have royal decrees from the king of Persia that says they can, do, they can do this. They can change whatever they need to change. And, but doggone it, they're tired. They are tired it is exhausting to, to carry so much uh, importance for three months. It's exhausting to think today's the day I may get in a fight and to be ready for a fight every day for three months. Some of you know this. It's exhausting and they're tired. Now, it's easy for us to imagine God saying, I don't care how tired you are. I've given you royal decrees and treasure and protection. Get to work. But that is never the voice of our God. I have read this Bible through many times and I've never heard the voice of God say, I've given you something important to do and I don't care how tired you are, get to work. I know somebody who is on even a more important journey than the one you and I are on that you're writing about. I know someone who's on a journey even more important than Ezra is on. I know Jesus Christ. I know Jesus Christ and I know the journey he was on and I know how he acted along the way. Consider this passage from John chapter four. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Jesus is traveling and he's tuckered out and he's like, I'm just gonna go sit by the well. It's the middle of the day, I'm done. Mark chapter six. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. Guys, he's healing sick people who may die. He is casting demons out of children who are possessed by the devil. He is... Um, 
he is fulfilling the entire Old Testament, right? He's bringing the kingdom of God. But doggone it, he's tired. And he says, I got to get out of here. Let's get in the boat and go somewhere. And they get in the boat and he and his buddies go park somewhere where I guess they threw pebbles in the lake all day. This is what I love about our God. This is what makes our God, picture of God different than any other picture in the world. Our God has also been fully human and he knows what it's like and what it all feels like. Um, Hebrews celebrates this in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter four says, this high priest of ours understands our weakness for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus faced the testing of exhaustion and how did he respond? He rested and that is not a sin. Jesus did not sin when he rested. So Ezra, on his journey, he's shorthanded. It is dangerous. He's exhausted. So he takes three days and rests. Jesus is very shorthanded. His journey is very dangerous. When he's exhausted, he takes a rest. And I'm not talking about, you know, just before the fourth quarter, let's take a break and then we'll take the hill. This is John chapter four out of 21. This is Mark chapter six out of 16. They're barely getting started and Jesus is already saying, whew, this is real tiring. Let's take a break. So your journey may just be getting started and you're like, I'm already so tired. I'm already emotionally wrung out from this. God is saying to you, take a break. We'll get, yeah, there's a long way to go yet. We'll get to that. Take a weekend, take a week, take a month. I'll be there with you but you're human. I know what it's like. I made you. I've been you. Let's rest. We'll start again soon. So that's the next thing on your journey, no matter how little ground you've made, is it time for a rest? Will you allow that? Will you allow God to bring you that rest and take it? Let me sum up chapter, uh, not chapters, verses 33 through 34. After the three days, then they decide to get to work. And the first thing they got to do is have a big weigh-in. That 56,000 pounds of gold, silver, and it's all got to be weighed to make sure that what they left with, they've actually got here with. Every cup, bowl, and spoon. Just make sure no thieves snuck up in the night, took things, switched them. They're traveling with 5,000 people. Probably some of them had sticky fingers. So... They weigh it all in and every last item is there and accounted for. What a miracle. So now there's just one problem left and that is their own sin. They've been living for four generations. Guys, nobody in this caravan's ever been in Jerusalem and worshiped at the temple before. For four generations, they've lived in Persia. Persia, a land where idols are worshiped. Persia, a land where uh, there is sexual temptation because there's no Old Testament law. A land where problems are solved by violence. A land filled with unclean food. Remember that they're Jewish. Remember that the priest had to be talked into going back to work. Because for a hundred years they've had no temple. There wasn't really anything for them to do. So... The reason they went to exile to begin with, the Bible says, is because they had forgotten God and failed to worship him. And it really looks like while they were there, they forgot him some more. 
So now they're coming home. They want to turn their hearts back to God, but everything that's happened before is, is there. What are we going to do about that? I want to ask the same about your journey. As you draw closer to God on your journey, will your heart be clean? Or have you seen things you shouldn't have seen? Done things you shouldn't have done? Tasted and experienced things you should not have experienced? Said things that you really shouldn't have said? Have you ignored things that you should not have ignored? Have you ignored God? And yet now you want to draw close to him. So what are we going to do about that? Ezra 8 suggests an answer. Then the exiles who had come out of captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. They presented 12 bulls for all the people of Israel, as well as 96 rams and 77 male lambs. They also offered 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was given as a burnt offering to the Lord. They're overjoyed to find that in that temple, God has made a way for them to be restored. Now, sometimes we talk about these Old Testament practices like that was some sort of legalism or ritual they were trapped in and and God wishes they wouldn't do that. And that's not true. That's not true. This whole system, this law of Moses, that was God's idea. True, he wanted it to be in a tent that could move with them and they kind of made him mad by building it in a permanent temple that's stuck in one city. True, they turned it into a lot of other things that he never meant it to be. But the core idea, the core idea of, of all of this Old Testament law was God's idea. It was, to, it was a lesson, a living lesson to teach them this is what sin is. This is what sin does to your heart. And it's not something you can take away yourself. But I don't want it to be a barrier between you and I. And so I will make a way for it to be taken away. There is one who will take your place. Watch for it. It will be something like these sacrifices. And they celebrate that. And we celebrate that because it is made full in Christ Jesus on the cross. Christ Jesus on the cross teaches us this is what sin is. This is what sin does to your heart. And it's not something you can take away yourself. You can't make up for it. You can't make it go away. But I, God, don't want that to stand between you and I. So I'm going to come and I'm going to take it away through the death and resurrection of my son on the cross. And he becomes the once and for all sacrifice. After him, there are no more temples. There are no more sacrifices. God has done it. The lesson is fulfilled. This is what uh, Hebrews in the New Testament celebrates. Let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people from, uh, people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For the, by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that's our final question. Have you been cleansed by Jesus from your journey, for your journey? Have you been cleansed? Have you, have you admitted your sins? Have you said, God, there's things I have seen I shouldn't have seen, said I shouldn't have said. I've ignored things I shouldn't have ignored. You most of all. But I'm so filled with joy to see you don't want that to be a barrier between us. And so you've done what I couldn't do. 
You've taken it away by giving yourself. And I'm so filled with joy you would do that. I believe that. I love you for that. I love you for loving me. I want to open my heart to you, God. Invite Christ in through the Holy Spirit to live inside me and guide me on this journey that I'm on and all the journeys in the future I'm going to go on. I want to take them differently from now on with you. Have you done that? If you want that story in your life, all you do is you open your heart to God and it becomes true. He comes in. He's waiting right now. He's always waiting. He was waiting for them to come home to Jerusalem in that temple saying, I've already got your cleansing ready. I've already got your cleansing ready. So if you're ready for that, let's pray right now. It's not the magic words of the prayer. It's your heart being open while we pray to this story and believing God has done this for us. So I invite you to pray with me right now. Let's pray. Father, I do admit my sins. I, I'm not coming to you with a clean heart. I have seen things I shouldn't have seen, said things I shouldn't have said, done things I shouldn't have done. I've ignored things I should not have been ignoring. You most of all, God. But I'm so filled with joy to know that you don't want that to be between us. And God, I can't take it away, but you did. You can do that, God, through your son, Christ Jesus. I am so thankful for him. So thankful for what he's done. I accept that, Lord. I thank you for loving me. I love you. I don't even know everything about you yet, but I know that if this is the kind of God you are, then I love you. And I want to open my heart to you and invite this Holy Spirit in to lead me and guide me on this journey and, and all the journeys I'm going to take. I want to take them with you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're shorthanded on your journey, God is sending help. If your journey is dangerous, God is protecting. Your journey is exhausting. And God is saying, please rest. We'll start again. Amen.